All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel. We've been uh, going through the uh, Matthew's Gospel. We've been taking our sweet time, and for good reason. There's so many things in the Word of God, especially the Gospels. If you remember, last week we began looking at chapter 8, and we really just got through the first uh, four verses, and we looked at these, you know, talking about Jesus, or God, Jehovah Rapha, God our healer, and we looked at uh, the first four verses, and let's just quickly read them. It says, when he had come down from the mountain... Great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so we looked at this idea of Jesus being Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah, obviously speaking of God Almighty, Yahweh, Jehovah, and Rapha is the Hebrew for healer. So the Lord our healer, or God our healer. And if you remember, we looked at Exodus chapter 15, and we looked at this, uh, this uh, place called the waters of Marah, that when Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came to this place where the waters were bitter, and God commanded uh, Moses, in order to make the water well to drink, he was to throw in this tree, this shrub, into the water, and it would make the water sweet and able to be drunk, and, and thus uh, help the people. And so he did that, and, and the Lord made the water sweet, and it said in verse 26, the Lord says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his commandments, I will put none of these diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. And this is the first instance in the Bible where we have this idea of Jehovah Rapha. Literally, the Lord, all caps, is Yahweh or Jehovah heals you. And that's the word we get Rapha, Jehovah Rapha, the very first place we see it. And Isaiah even said something too, which is very interesting. In Isaiah 53, remember, it says, Surely he, speaking of Jesus, has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are Rapha, we are healed. So not only just a, a, a physical healing, but a spiritual healing as well. And, and Jesus provides all of that to us. David in Psalm 103, you remember, it says, he said in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities, and here, who heals, again, the word Rapha, all your diseases. Now, God doesn't heal everyone miraculously, does he, on this side of eternity? We wish he did. 
Sometimes God allows the natural processes to take over and, and allow people to contract diseases or even some other malady uh, physically that may ultimately, may ultimately take your life. He allows these things. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. Ultimately, as a believer, you're going to be healed because you're going to be in his presence. And see, that's the one healing that we often forget. But see, you and I are only thinking about life on this earth. But God sees life much, in a much bigger way. And even if some disease or something takes me, I know that ultimately I'm going to be in his presence. And that's the ultimate healing. Because that's it, folks. That's the, the worst I will ever see it. Do you understand? The worst you will ever experience as a believer is whatever physical death that God may allow, may allow in your life. We, we, we're all going to die. I don't know if you knew that. Sorry to be a Johnny Rain cloud, but we are all going to die. There's a 100% chance forecast that each one of us are going to go at some point. Either, and hopefully, I'm hoping for the rapture, and that would be even greater because then I'll be snatched up, you and I will be snatched up, and we won't taste physical death. Blessed is the generation that sees that. Right? That's what I'm hoping for. Why? Because I'm a wimp. And why? Because I want to escape death. <laughs> Is that such a bad thing? Can I get an amen? <laughs> I want to escape death. I don't want to die. I'm not, looking, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just I'm not looking forward to the process. You know, I, I'm not. But we shouldn't let that stumble our faith that God heals sometimes, and sometimes he allows natural processes just to take over. Because even the word of God tells, that, tells us that, because in Ecclesiastes, what does it say? All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all will return to the dust unless the rapture occurs. This is the fate of all of us. And if you're a believer in Christ, your soul, your spirit go to heaven. But if you don't believe in Christ and you've rejected him to the end, then your soul goes to hell. Yes, there is a literal heaven and hell. And it's very serious. Jesus, more than anybody in the Bible, talked about hell more than anyone. So it's not just something that the church made up. It's something that the, the Bible teaches. It's something that God wants us to know. But even in Hebrews, what does it tell us? Ch ch uh, chapter 9, verse 27, it says that it's appointed for man to die once, and then what? But after this, the judgment. Yes, even for believers, there's going to be a judgment, but not a judgment, as you know, of, of whether you're going to heaven or hell. Because if you're a believer, you're going to be judged at the Bema seat where you receive rewards or lack of rewards, but you're still going to heaven. But the evil, those who have rejected Christ and lived their own lives and have rejected him, they will ultimately spend eternity away from him. They will be judged. And God doesn't delight in that. At the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15 tells us that. And that's a judgment that I know that God is not looking forward to. He'd rather that we lived, right? And what does it tell us in John 5, 28 and verse 29? Do not marvel at this, Jesus said, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Did you hear that? The resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. Yes, everyone will be resurrected. It's just a question of where you're going to go in that resurrected body. Right, But a physical resurrection and eternity await all of us. And we should pray and ask God for healing. 
Uh, you know, whether it's for ourselves when we are sick or for somebody else. And why? Why do we do that? Well, because we don't like being sick, but mainly because the Lord tells us in James chapter 5. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, there's nothing special about me or any of the other pastors and elders. But this is a commandment of God. If you're sick, come to the elders and the pastors, and they'll anoint you with oil, right? Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. See, when we are sick, let's go to the Lord first, when possible, and when the situation lends itself, because sometimes you have to go to the doctor immediately, right? Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't have time to... You know, you, certainly you pray in the, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. But seek him. Cry out to him. But remember that medical doctors are in a practice. Are there any doctors in the house? Good, because what I'm going to say is going to... No, I'm only kidding. No, I love doctors. Honestly, they're, they're wonderful people. They're wonderful people. But remember, it is a practice. And unfortunately, every one of us are guinea pigs. Right? We're guinea pigs. Because it's a medical science, it's a practice, and what works for one patient might not work for another. So it is a practice. It's something that they're trying, they're working hard to practice, and you and I are what they're practicing on. And sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they don't, right? I love what David said in Psalm 139. He says, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We are so intricate. We are so... uh, our bodies are made and created in such a way, it, it, it confounds science. They still don't know what all happens in our body. What thing is there that can correct itself, that can protect itself from viruses and cancers? And the body does that until it's overwhelmed, of course. But who does that? And, and who is the maker of that? You know what that's like? That's like a software that doesn't have software bugs. That's like having Microsoft or Apple or whatever have a software and it never has bugs. And when it encounters a problem, it fixes itself immediately. How cool would that be? And yet we put all of our faith in the science all around us and God does this all automatically inside of us. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, it says this, A certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and notice, had suffered many things from many physicians. They, they were trying to work it out. They were trying to figure it out. But, and, and you all know this, too. Sometimes, you know, you go to the doctor, and they're trying to help you, and they give you something, and instead of helping you, it does the opposite. Because they don't know. They're practicing. But Jehovah Rapha, <laughs> we go to him first. Go to him first. Say, Lord, what's going on? Should I go to the doctor? Will you heal me? And Lord, will you heal me? And sometimes he does. And I don't always understand why he does and why he doesn't. I really don't. I wish I did. No. But it's too much for me to understand. Because I understand that even in my disease, even in my malady that I may have, I'm being examined. God is working in my heart. He's chipping away the old block. He's chipping away at the old block. I'm chipping away my dependence on everything else but him. And sometimes I think he's just trying to get our attention and remind us. And other people also are looking in on our lives. How are you dealing with that cancer? 
How are you dealing with this issue in your life? And they look and they see you're not freaking out, but you know, a mature believer can understand and, 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 and though it's not easy and it's very difficult and often it'll bring, it right, bring you right to the end of yourself, but we still trust the Lord, don't we? It will. It'll take you right to the end of yourself and sometimes that's where God begins. Most of the time, I think, where he begins where I've come to the end of myself. So we get into verse 5 here. Notice, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Notice that. Jesus is willing. He, he didn't even ask him. Did you notice that? Lord, my servant is paralyzed and terribly tormented. The man didn't say, would you please come and heal him? The implication is there, of course, but Jesus said, of course. I will come, and when I come, I will heal him. And notice this happened at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a name uh, over on the uh, western side of the Jordan, or I'm sorry, the western side of, um, of the Galilee, right over here, is where Capernaum is. It's a little fishing village and whenever we go to Israel, we stay at this place called Naf Ginnasar, which is right here. It's Galilee. It's Magdala. Right there is where Mary Magdalene was born. Our, our kibbutz is right next to where she was born. But Capernaum is over here, this fishing village. And, uh, and this is the place. And it literally means Kafar Nahum, or the town, or the city, or the village of comfort. The village of Nahum, yes, the prophet in the Bible. We believe that Nahum, the prophet, was born at this place. But this would be the, the place where Jesus would make his headquarters. And he would stay in the house of Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law. And Jesus would spend a lot of time here in Capernaum. And notice that uh, the centurion comes to him. And it wasn't even a Jew who came to him. It was a Gentile man, a Roman soldier who was part of the Roman Empire, a commander over a hundred men. And he says, Lord, my servant's lying at home paralyzed. And, um, and the, so the centurion comes, asks Jesus, And notice that how compassionate this man was. This centurion, he wasn't just going to cast off this sick servant of his, but he saw value in his life and what the servant, uh, more than what the servant could do for him. And Jesus saw that the centurion was merciful, and thus he received merciful. Isn't that true? Be merciful and you will, be, you will receive mercy. This is what the golden rule is all about. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. So Jesus saw this merciful man and he was going to extend mercy to him as well. And you know what I wonder is if the Roman centurion had not asked, the man probably wouldn't have been healed. Do you realize how scary that is? What would have happened if the centurion says, you know what, I'm not going to bother Jesus. You know, this guy came in late the last three days. I'm done with him. You know, would he have died? Paralyzed in torments. But even this Gentile knew something. <laughs> and he knew that 
He needed to ask, and he needed to seek, and he needed to knock. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And notice, even to the wise, aged saint, God's ways are mysterious. It's very mysterious to me. God is just and righteous in all that he does. But much of the time, we do not understand what he's doing. And that's the thing that racks us. That's the thing that gives us the difficulty. That's where our faith is tested. But I love what it says in Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That means that I don't understand every situation. I don't understand why this happens and why this happens. And why didn't this happen when this person really deserved it and yet this person did deserve it or didn't deserve it and, and now they're in this place. Those are thoughts that I will not chase. I'm not going to run after things that I can't understand. Those things, I believe, belong to God alone. And maybe he will reveal that to you. And when he does, blessed are you when you have an answer to your sickness, to your malady. But we don't always understand. So the Saturian answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But notice this, marvelous, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. This is amazing. You know, this Gentile had more faith than the Jews who had the scriptures and claimed faith in God. This Gentile, this pagan, who obviously the Lord had touched his heart, something was happening in this man, even though he, was, he had a vocation that put him in the enemy's camp in a sense, but he knew he was unworthy, unlike some of the self-righteous religious leaders who believed that just because they were Jews that somehow God had to accept them and cut them a deal. But notice this man was humble, he was desperate, and God loves humility. Whether it's Jew or Gentile, what does it tell us? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, James tells us, and he will lift you up. And in Luke 14, 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, I'm sorry, I messed that up. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this Roman centurion came to Jesus humble and needy. Jesus wasn't concerned whether he was not a Jewish person. He wasn't concerned that he was a Roman citizen or even part of the Roman Empire. Because God is not partial. He doesn't look at one person and says, well, because you're a Jew, I'll do it for you, but not for the other. See, that's a really wrong thinking. Deuteronomy tells us that God shows no partiality, nor does he take bribes. He's a perfect judge. And he loves people. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter on any of those demographics. He could care less about any of that. And see, that's the, the eyes that we, the church, need to have in the world that we live in. We don't look at, I mean, we can notice there are people with darker skin than us. There are people who look different than us. And these different nations and different uh, you know, things, differences, they're fine. They're no different than us, though. We need to love, and we need to reach out. No one is exempt, because God loves people. He wants to reach every single soul. 
But do you have a humble heart or do you think that God owes you for something that you did for him or because something bad happened to you and you feel like maybe he has somehow, he has to make it up to you? You know, where are our hearts today? Am I saying, God, you've got, you owe me this. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is God will never be indebted to us. But we will be forever indebted to him. Because he did one thing that nobody ever could do, and that is not only to give me the forgiveness of sin, but to take up residence in my heart by his spirit, being born again and now having, living a holy life, which is a good thing, isn't it? Not being in trouble all the time and going to jail and waking up in a pool of vomit. I don't know about anybody you, but that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And then being forgiven and then not even wanting or desiring those things, and then having even the greater thing, and that's the blessed hope knowing that he's going to come for us and change our bodies in the twinkling of an eye. And forever we will be with the Lord. I don't know about you, but you can have all this world. I'll take that. Seriously. If Elon Musk and all these other people who are you know, the big movers and shakers of the world says, we'll give, you, we'll give you all of our money, just renounce Christ and live on this earth and be happy till you die, I'd say, you know what, you can take it. I could care less. I have Christ and I have a hope that you need to have. Because all your money is not going to get you to heaven. All your money is not going to heal you. And it's amazing to me, sometimes the most wealthy people, they, they have some malady and they go to the best places, Boston University, and they, they, or they go to these great places of great medical science and they got the best. The creme de la creme, the upper crust are working on them. Thousands, millions of dollars. And they're like, I'm sorry, we we can't help you. There's nothing we can do. What do you mean? I thought my money could buy me. No, I'm sorry, you can't take it with you. And we know that. But it's a healthy and a godly way for us to think. We are indebted to him, not, not the other way around. It's a good thing. So verse 9, he says, For I am also a man, this Roman centurion says, I'm also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And see, Jesus longed to see this kind of faith among his own people. And I'll be honest with you, I think Jesus desires to see that kind of faith among his church as well. Because we are his people too. The Jews are his people. And the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, we are his people as well. He desires to see that in us. But do you understand that everything in our world is working against us? Everything in the world is working against to tear down your faith in God. To tear down your faith in Christ, every single thing. Honestly, think of it sometime, and think about your day, and think about where you go, the things you watch, the things that entertain you, and and ask the question, does any of this encourage me in my walk with Christ? And answer the hard question, and where necessary, make changes. There's nothing wrong with kicking back and eating popcorn on the couch and watching something, but be careful about what you watch. Is it horrible? Is it filled with sex and violence and just 
the whole thing is just littered with filthy language, then maybe consider something else because what you behold is what you become. The things that I take in, that's going to own me at some point. It's going to rot away what God wants to do in me and what he's doing in me. It would behoove me then to take stock of those things and say, you know what? I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm not going to, even though it's lawful and it's nothing weird or wacky, I'm just, it doesn't really lift me up. It doesn't build me up anymore. It makes me more cynical. It takes things away from me. But many of the Jews and the religious leaders at that time, they were, they were proud. <laughs> you know, this man came uh, humbled and he was grateful and then believing that Jesus could heal his servant. Notice with just a word. But many of the Jews and the religious leaders of that time, what were they? Just the opposite. They were proud, they were unthankful, and even unbelieving. So which are we? Are we proud and unthankful and unbelieving? I don't think we are. I think we are humbled. And ask God to, to, to do that in you, to, to bring humility into your life. And be grateful. That's why I love as we are coming upon Thanksgiving. That's a great time to be thankful. I am so thankful. Honestly, I could never be more thankful. And I think ever since I've known Christ and up to this moment in time, I look back on my life since I've come to Christ, and I am so amazed at the grace of God. And I am so incredibly thankful, and I am so incredibly grateful for all that he has done. I'm so thankful that I grew up in the United States of America. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather in the Civil War, my father during the Vietnam War, fighting. I'm so thankful to have a family, so thankful that I get to do what I get to do, the miracle of miracles. Verse 11, back in our text, Jesus goes on and he says, And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does this statement mean? You know, we believe that this is speaking of the time at the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of Christ's millennial reign when the Old Testament saints who will be resurrected in their new glorified bodies and believing Gentiles who survived that great tribulation period will enter the kingdom on this earth. Yes, there's a kingdom after the thousand years, but there is a thousand years, folks, left on this terra firma that you and I are going to inhabit with new bodies. Do you know that? But th I believe this is referring to those Old Testament saints who we believe, you know, the rapture is going to take the church, but it's at the end of that uh, tribulation period, right when, at, when Christ's second coming to the earth, we believe through the scriptures that that is when the Old Testament saints who have believed in God, that's when they will receive their resurrection bodies. And there will also be Gentiles that survive that horrible time of Jacob's trouble that will inherit believers, Gentiles, that will inherit that kingdom. And we look at that in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, it says this. It says, at the time... 
At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And here the Lord is speaking to Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And that's speaking of this great tribulation period. And at that time, your people, the Jews, shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book of life, written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake. Notice, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so then he goes on in the very last verse of that chapter, and he says, verse 13, But you, Daniel, go your way till the end, for you shall rest. In other words, you're going to die like normal people. And you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And we believe that that time is at the beginning when Christ comes in his second coming. But there will also be Gentiles who will make it into the kingdom as well. In Zechariah, believing Gentiles. In Zechariah chapter 8 beginning in verse 20 it says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts. People shall yet come. Inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, two men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. I love that. There's coming a day when many will come from the east and from the west, and they will sit down in the millennial kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what Jesus is telling this centurion. But notice he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth. This sons of the kingdom seem to refer to the Jews and others who, because they were religious, they believe they deserve admittance into heaven. These are the religious people who think, well, of course I'm going to go to heaven. I'm wearing the robe. I've got, I go through the vestments. And I do all of these wonderful things. I help Virginia root across the street for her groceries. I did all of these wonderful things, right, Virginia? She was helped across the road and even given a stipend, a, a daily stipend of, of a wad of cash. She's smiling. Done all these things, so therefore, you know, I'm a priest, you know, and that's, that I, I, of course I'm going to be admitted. And God says, no. The sons of the kingdom who ought to know better who should have known my will, who should have followed me and, and given uh, their heart to me, instead of leading the people toward me, you led them against me and led them to yourselves, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And you will go into outer darkness and you will be judged at the great white throne judgment, sent to the lake of fire, Gehenna, for eternity at the end. And that's the lot, that's the fate of those who claim that they're religious, but they're so far away from Jesus. Then Jesus, verse 13, said to the centurion, go your way, and as, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Notice that. He didn't even go to his house to touch him. And notice, notice something. It was the measure of his faith in Jesus that determined the outcome. I find that amazing. 
That really is amazing. Jesus made a similar statement in Matthew chapter 9, which we'll get to next, uh, uh, probably next week or the week after that. But it says that in Matthew 9, verse 27, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Son of God, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe, notice, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. We believe that you're able to do this. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. They believed, and therefore they received the blessing. Now, we have to be careful here because there is a movement, and have been movements in the church for many, many years, you know, the faith movement. You know, well, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. Now, you've got to be careful with that nonsense. If it's God's will, you'll be healed. Regardless, you could have the faith of a mountain, and if it's not God's will for you to be healed, you're not going to be healed. Is he able? Of course. And you pray, and you pray, and you submit your heart to him, but if you don't get healed, it's not his will. But there are people in the church that saying, well, you know, your faith is not that big. I'm really sorry. Mine is. I came down with COVID, and I was able to pray, and God healed me instantly sorry, but you've got this horrible disease and you just don't have the faith like I've got. <laughs> Wish you did. You know, maybe I can send you some through, you know, some kind of app or something, you know. Faith, you know, faith app, you know, just put in their phone number and send them some faith. And yet people do that to people and it's so horrible. Don't get wrapped up in that whole faith. People have faith in faith, and they should have faith in God. But a similar thing happened to Joash, king of Israel, during the time of Elisha. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 13. Elisha had become sick with an illness which he would die. And then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. And so he took a bow and some arrows, and then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And so he put his hand on the bow, and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the east window, and he opened it. And then Elisha said, now shoot. And so he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows. And so he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and then he stopped. (laughs) And the man of God, Elisha, was angry with him and he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have had struck Syria till you have destroyed them. But now you will strike Syria only three times. And again, according to his faith, let it be done to him. Do you see that? Elisha said, strike those arrows on the ground. And of course, you know, he just struck it three times thinking that that was enough. He didn't know that it was, you know. <laughs> if I were Joash, I would have taken those arrows and just smashed them on the ground so much that pieces are splintering everywhere. And he's like, okay, man, Syria's dead. But according to your faith, let it be done to you. We have to be careful in that, though. 
that we don't assume and presume things, but we must trust Jesus always, no matter what. There's no formula for this kind of thing. But we have to believe him. I like the verse that says, you know, that um, God is a, a, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, let's seek the Lord and pray. Knowing that he is able. Amen. And you know what? I've seen God do this even in our fellowship. But sometimes I find that I can have an amnesia. I forget that God has done this. And yet many of you and many others who aren't here with us today have had issues and God has done some miraculous things. Don't ever forget those things. Because someday you're going to be really struggling with faith. You're going to be down in the mouth. You're going to be discouraged. and You're going to be having your pity party there on your couch. And you're going to forget all the good things and the wonderful things that God has done. And sometimes I think this is why journals can be really helpful. Because you can write down the great and wonderful things that God has done and review that when you're down in the mouth, when you're having your pity party and nobody's showing up. <laughs> and you're sitting there in your, in your pool of tears. Get out that prayer journal and remind yourself of God's goodness. Verse 14, that says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother. Notice that Peter had a wife. Hmm. The Bible tells us that. Did you notice that? Now I'm building up to something, so I'm making you aware of this now. Jesus came into Peter's house. He saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So Peter's house evidently was right next to the synagogue there in Capernaum. And there's a parallel account in Mark's gospel that tells us so. It says, now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, as soon as they had come out, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Yes, and I've been to this place. If you go to Capernaum in Israel today, and it's one of the stops that we make you literally, the, the synagogue is right there and not too far away, just a, a couple, you know, a handful of feet is Peter's house. And it's there today, the remnants of it anyway. And this is where this happened, where this event happened. So Jesus lodged with Peter, his wife, and his mother in law. Yes, Peter was married. Now, for those of you who are Roman Catholic prior, or if you're Roman Catholic today, they claim that Peter was the first pope. But this is not true. <laughs> because if it was, then why did the Roman Catholic Church impose celibacy upon priests and ministers when their supposed founder was not celibate himself? Why would they do that? You know, it's unfortunate what has happened in the Roman Catholic Church, how many priests and bishops were sworn to celibacy when God had not even called them to that disposition. And then as a result, we see these horrible things of drunkenness and homosexuality and pedophilia staining the ministry of the Roman Catholic Church. And also, honestly, some Protestant churches. The Protestants aren't um, squeaky clean on this either. Protestants are certainly not free from scandal and impropriety. We know that that's true. So I'm an equal opportunity abuser this morning. 
It's true. But they weren't called to celibacy, and Peter wasn't the first pope. Peter had a wife. In fact, this is a, an aerial view of Capernaum, and you can see right here is uh, the Sea of Galilee uh, out here, and the waters have receded quite a bit from when this picture was taken. Uh, this was taken in 2000, and the water is way out here now. It's, it's quite a bit different now. But this area right here, and a lot of this area around here, they haven't even excavated um, but this area right here, there's like a little a structure that's built over Peter's house. And the Roman Catholic Church, evidently, they own or have the rights to Capernaum. And they built this structure right on top of Peter's house. And, and it's there to this day. But a 5th century Byzantine church was built in and around the site. And today, like I said, the Roman Catholic Church has built this structure literally right on top of it. But you can go underneath it. It's on stilts, but you can go underneath and you can see where uh, Peter's house was. And you know, I guess in a way, this is kind of a blessing because it, it, it actually protects this site from erosion and rain and all kinds of other things. So praise the Lord for that, I guess, right? So verse 15, he touched her hand, seeing that she was uh, down and had a fever. And notice, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. How many of you have had a really debilitating fever? What is it that you do when you finally, uh, are you able to get up? And, you know, if you're, I mean, first off, it's usually a, a, a gradual sort of getting better, and slowly you get your strength back. But notice this woman, what an, uh, an incredible thing he does. The process is gone. Now it's just a place from where she had a fever, and the next thing, she was healed. And then what? She gets up, and she ministers to him and them. She's grateful. She's thankful. Has God healed you? I know many of us, he has. And if he has, how do you show that gratitude? How do I show gratitude when the Lord does things for me? Are you loving and serving Jesus out of gratitude? Or do you, have you got your healing and then you just run off and continue in your life in the flesh? It's interesting, in, uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17... It says, it happened that he went, Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. And one stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices, and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, notice, as they went, they were cleansed. They could have said, you know, I don't believe this stuff. I'm not going. But notice, they had a small mustard seed of faith. As they went, they were healed. I like that. Because that means that first, my faith in God and Jesus was activated. And now I was believing that he could do it. And so I began on my way. And as they walked, they were healed. There's something beautiful about that too. He's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Just walk, trust him, believe him. And then notice what it says. 
And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned with a loud voice and he glorified God and he fell down on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 that were cleansed? But where are the nine? Were were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you whole. One out of of nine, or one out of ten, thankful for what Christ has done. I think thanksgiving is one of the most powerful, most spiritual things that we can express. Being grateful and being thankful. And that's why I pray that this thanksgiving will be the best that we've ever experienced for you and your family, that you would, and I would encourage you to take time around the family, you know, around the table, before you, maybe before everything is ready to come out of the oven or afterwards, it doesn't matter when you do it, but take some time and just get together and say, you know, let's just have a huddle here and let's just take a few minutes. What are you thankful for? What are you truly thankful for? What has God done for you this year that you're thankful for? And let that be a, a, a tradition maybe in your family every year. What are we thankful for? And give God thanks. Give him thanks. There's nothing better than to give thanks to God. It's the most spiritual thing that we could ever do, to give thanks to God. And I'm a very thankful person because I've been on the other side of the cross. I've been on the other side where my life, where I wasn't saved. I didn't have Christ in me. And I live for my flesh. And I, I, I know what that's like. And for you young people, I've got to tell you, there is, there is nothing about that that all your friends are doing. Don't go there. Don't go there. It is not worth it. Yes, it's a flash in the pan joy, maybe. The Bible says, it's very honest, right? There's a, sin is pleasurable for a season. But it doesn't last very long. And then the devil comes and says, all right, now you've got to pay the price. Now I've got to pay the consequence for my night of debauchery, for my drunken stupor where I don't even remember where I'm at. I wake up in somebody else's house and don't even know where I'm at. Or maybe you wake up next to somebody, you're like, who are you? That's happened to people. Not me, specifically, but I know people that that's happened to. And what kind of life is that anyway? Is that real life? It's not life. It's bondage. Did you ever wish that you could go back and the Lord could heal your memory? He can, I believe. But sometimes you have memories. And say, Lord, would you heal me from the things that I've done? You know, I've, I've thought about at times, especially since I've come to Christ, I've looked back on my life and the horrible things that I've done before I was 24 years of age, especially then. And I think about them, and I think of the, the people that I hurt. And you know, I just wished I could go back. Wish I could find every single one of those people and say, you know what? I was a horrible, horrible, selfish, rotten person. And I am really sorry for what I said to you, for what I did. Would you forgive me? It was totally wrong. 
but just to be healed, you know? See, that's the power of Jesus. He's able to heal you physically and spiritually. And he would prefer to do both according to his will. Verse 16, it says, so now we're still in Capernaum. We're still in this area on the east or western shore of Galilee. You saw a picture a few moments ago. So when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Notice, with a word. And notice, underline this, he healed all who were sick. This moment, this time, for some reason, at this time, he healed every single person who came. And there are other times where he only healed one, and yet there were people in the crowd that were still ailing and had issues, but they didn't come to him. They didn't ask, but now you got a whole group of people here in Capernaum near Peter's house, and they're all coming around him, and that night he healed the demon-possessed. He healed all. It says, by the word, the, the word in the Greek, all, you've heard this before. It means something really wonderful. It means only a few. No, it means all. He healed all. One of those wonderful cases. And notice in this instance, he, he, he did it. He healed it. And notice that not only does God, Jesus, have control over our physical well-being, but he also has command over the unseen realm, over uh, spirits, you know, good and evil. And this is further proof that he is the Messiah. In fact, that's why Matthew chose this in his gospel. That's why he chose to put that here. To show that Jesus is the healer. He has control over our bodies. He has control over, over everything physical. And he also has control over non-physical things. I love, uh, this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible in Colossians 1. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things, notice this, by him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Notice, the visible things, the things that we can see and touch, and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. He is the glue that holds the atoms together. Even scientists today are wondering, how is this possible? This atom should be flying apart, but there's something holding it together. They call it the God particle, the God glue. Yes, it's right here. It's in him that all things consist. He holds it all together, but guess what? One day, he's going to say, okay, now I'm going to let it go. And Peter tells us it's going to be an incredible event. At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, he's going to cause this current earth and heavens to dissolve with what? Fervent heat. Talk about nuclear fusion or fission. I don't, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what it is. All I know is it's really big and it's going to be really horrible. But the, the, the good news is, is that the redeemed are going to be saved out of it. But he's going to release that glue and everything is going to go completely ballistic. He controls the atom. I like that. This very 
thing that I've got my hands on, the molecules in this thing. He's got it all under control. But one day, <laughs> these molecules are just going to go schizo. Gone. Fervent heat. There probably won't even be any ash. It's going to be so intense. It's just going to vanish in fervent heat. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In Colossians 2.15 it says that he disarmed principalities and powers even at the cross. He disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What did he say on the cross at Calvary? It is finished. The, pay, the price has been paid in full. The work of Satan is broken. Doesn't mean that he stopped. Satan is still active and well. I don't know if you know that, but he's still very active. But his day is coming. His day is coming, folks. Remember what, who the winning team is. It's Jesus. He is the winning team. And we are in him. And therefore, we are on the winning team. I like to win. And I'm glad I'm with him, aren't you? Good always triumphs over evil. Why do you think all the movies have a happy ending? Because good, in our hearts, we know that good will and should prevail over evil. Correct? And if you want, if you want your movie ratings to go down, you make a movie where it ends dismally, where the, the evildoers you know, win. But when they don't, it just proves that God is true and everything he said is true. Jesus is preeminent over all of his creation, things visible and things invisible. Finally, we'll end here in verse 17. Notice, and all of this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And, and this is a reference um, Notice of Matthew going back to Isaiah 53, verse 4, the Old Testament chapter that speaks of the suffering servant. It speaks of Jesus specifically. Yes, 700 years B.C., before Christ was even born, Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, was writing about what would happen to Jesus 700 years ahead of time. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. We read this earlier, too. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now let me ask you, how important is the Old Testament? Is it not part of the Bible? <laughs> it's part of the... And here we have an, a New Testament book that we're reading, quoting from the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament's always quoting from the Old Testament. Why? Because it's God's Word. It hasn't changed. 
It hasn't changed. All of it is good for us to read, to study, and to apply to our lives. What does it tell us in Hebrews? The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And notice this. This is scary. And as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart, of the heart. As I read this, boy, the surgery starts to happen. And you may not like everything you read in it, but as you do, as you read the Word of God, it's going to be healing you if you're willing to submit to it. It's going to be healing you. And Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy, didn't he? When he was tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days, what did he quote? The New Testament that hadn't been written yet? No, all he had was the Old Testament. He quoted from Deuteronomy. All three times. Is the Old Testament good? Is it good for us to read and to study? Is it part of the Bible? In 2 Timothy, Paul, speaking to his young protege, says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, notice this, from childhood, you have known the Scriptures. Now, did Timothy have a Bible? Did he have a Bible? Timothy didn't have a Bible like this. He didn't even have the New Testament. What did he have? The Old Testament. He had parchments. He had scrolls of the Old Testament. Right? And so Paul is saying, but you continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing that from from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise, what? For salvation. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture, all of it, Old and New Testaments, and I'm building up to something. There's a reason I'm doing this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what scriptures did Timothy have in his childhood? He had the Old Testament. The New Testament was still being written. And much of it hadn't been written yet. The New Testament wasn't even canonized until the 4th century A.D. All they had was the Old Testament. So be wary of preachers and famous teachers who say to you that the Old Testament's no longer valid. All you need is the New Testament. It's hogwash. It's hogwash. Revelation quoted so much from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is essential to our faith. It helps us. It's part of the Word of God. And there are those who say that. Seriously. There's people out there who are very famous that are saying, all you need is the New Testament. Now, honestly, you know, what, you know Jesus, all you need is Jesus, right? But if Jesus quoted you know, from all of the other books, you know, from the Old Testament... I think it's important, don't you? When he was going through his trial in the wilderness, he quoted from the Old Testament. I think it's important, don't you? Genesis is important because today they're trying to tell you that, and they have been for many years, that man has evolved. We now, we now know that you know, man came from the goo to the zoo to you. You know, some primordial ooze for millions of years, and then all of a sudden, then I popped out, and then the leg, and then it swam for a while, and then one of them got beached, and the poor thing laid there, and it, it flipper, you know, and it's trying, to, and then it finally gets up on it, adapts itself, 
and then somehow develops into some other creature. It's crazy. It's nonsense. I don't care how many PhDs they have after their name. I'll believe the word of God. Thank you very much. But believe the word of God and trust him and let the Lord heal you. And he may choose to heal you. And you know, even today, if, 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 you're, if you're sick, and we don't have very many elders today because many of them are out of town or, or sick right now, but if you want to come up after any service and you're, you're sick and you want to, uh, for again, you can pray with somebody else. You don't need me or anybody else, but you know, we'll anoint you with oil. We'll do what the scripture says and let the Lord figure all that out. Let's just be obedient. And go to him and say, Lord, I need you. And you know, I need him. I need to be healed. My heart has been broken. And many of your hearts have been broken. Many of your bodies have been going through difficult things. And I don't know about you, but I'm just like, you know what, Lord? I, I trust you. And I don't, I don't care what I have to go through as long as you're with me in it whether you choose to heal me, whether you allow the process to continue and ultimately even to take my life, just please be with me through it. And we have that confidence that he will. So be encouraged. And if you're going through something really heavy today, would you seek prayer? Maybe somebody sitting next to you after service. Maybe come on up, we can anoint you with oil. Let the Lord work it out. There's nothing magic in the oil. It's not, you know. Let's stand. And we'll, next week we'll finish this chapter because we kind of goes into a different direction at this point. Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, every one of us in this room has experienced difficulty Lord, most all of us in this room have suffered some kind of malady, some disease, some setback, a physical malady of some kind, and Lord, we're all still here because you, you did ultimately get us through it. And Lord, we pray for your continued hand upon us, and Lord, help us to always trust you, um, it, whether you, you heal us divinely and instantly and quickly like we see happen in your word or whether you heal us gradually and slowly, either way, God, we give you glory and thanksgiving for that. But Lord, I pray for my brothers and my sisters today. And certainly we lift up Pastor Dave and we lift up Al and Al Moldenhauer and, and Thomas Bird and others too, Father. We ask that today would you touch them, Jesus. Whatever you decide to do, that's your business and Lord, collectively, we would just like to say, Lord, would you heal us? Heal our hearts, heal our minds, heal our bodies. Whatever it is you want to do, God, and we know and believe you are able to do it, and we simply invite you to do it. Lord, I don't claim any great faith. I, I feel like I have a mustard seed of faith if I have that at all. But Lord, would you touch my, me and my brothers and sisters today? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.